0: The American Heart Association is proud to be a relentless force on a mission for longer, healthier lives. In our pursuit of that mission, we're having some amazing conversations along the way. These are the voices of the relentless. There was a night in July of 2012 that my life really changed and that was the night of the Aurora shooting. I was actually not supposed to be working that night, but I was called in for a backup call because a colleague of mine had called in sick and had never called in sick for 30 years. And this was really his second time ever. And so, you know, I, I went into work at 11 o'clock thinking that it was going to be just like any other overnight shift. I hadn't slept, I hadn't really prepared for it, but whatever I can push through. And just after midnight, that's when everything really changed. And we started hearing this chatter over the police scanner that there had been a shooting. And I don't think any of us were really prepared for what was coming other than just knowing, gosh, you know, there's gunfire, we should probably be ready in case we get a few patients. And we actually ended up getting 23 patients that night, all within, you know, just a couple of hours. And so very, very sick patients who had been shot multiple gunshot wounds, different levels of, you know, having to be taken almost immediately to the operating room versus even some folks who were able to be discharged home. But I think it was the night that I realized um, how important it was to have people and friends and colleagues. And and about two o'clock in the morning, out of nowhere, all of these people just showed up and started helping. Um, And I had been so overwhelmed. I think all of us had been so overwhelmed. We didn't even know to call for help. And these people just came because they knew that we needed it. And to me, that was what really sort of spurred me to say, look, same thing in, in New York City. I'm going to pay it forward. I want, to be, I want to be that person that shows up at 2 o'clock in the morning and just helps because, not because you called me, but because just so you know that there's people here who care. My name is Dr. Camilla Sassen. I'm the vice president for emergency cardiovascular care for the American Heart Association. I'm also an emergency medicine physician and just spent a month out in New York City helping to take care of patients with COVID-19. I'm also a mom to three children, Logan, who's five years old, Madeline, who's three years old, and Manny, who is eight years old and a 90-pound Labradoodle. That was our first fur baby. The flight when I landed in New York City and then even just driving through the streets of New York City at 11 o'clock at night on Sunday was really eerily quiet. I mean, I've been in New York City multiple times and I've never not seen people. (laughs) And so, you know, um, there's nine people on my flight. I walked into the airport and it was essentially those nine people who got off the flight and there was literally nobody else. And it was just this really weird sensation of just eerily quiet. You know, I think the anticipation of what I was thinking it was going to look like, you know, I thought I'd get off the plane and there would be people on the sides of the street who were, you know, gasping for air and, you know, just, just thinking about this, like almost like a wartime scenario and literally driving around that night, there was no one to be seen. There's no other cars. There's no other people. Um, the only folks I interacted with really for the first 24 hours were kind of the folks that I was working with. And everyone was just, you know, I think scared is is probably the, the biggest adjective that I could use to describe, you know, kind of that fear, that sense of like, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you've been. Um, I'm going to help you right now, but I'm going to keep my distance. And so, you know, I think that to me was kind of the the most striking thing going into New York city. And then, you know, I think the first time just suiting up, because you do, you, you have to be very careful about how you put on all of this personal protective equipment for the first time, especially, and, you know, making sure you do all the right steps and you put your mask on and your goggles on and your, um, and your gown and your gloves and, You know, I think, again, there's just more of a feeling of that fear of uncertainty and that, like, that's what's palpable in the air (laughs) more than anything else. Um, You know, I think everyone is just a a little bit afraid of what they're going to go into. So, to me, that was the sights and the sounds were really just quiet. And I think it it sort of amplified this feeling of I have no idea what I'm walking into, (laughs) having to weigh the kind of balance between being a mom and being a doctor and and contributing to my community here in Colorado and then sort of taking off on a whim, if you will, and moving to New York City for a month to help strangers, people who I literally never met, colleagues who I know of but had never actually worked with before. You know, I think it was a difficult decision in the sense that I felt... A lot of guilt, of course, for leaving my family, um, especially my three-year-old and my five-year-old and my husband, who you know, at that point is working from home. We don't have daycare, so he's primary caretaker, trying to work 40 hours a week and trying to be dad and mom all at the same time. And then at that same sense, trying to balance that with this feeling inside that I just really had where I felt like I literally could not be at home. Um, and I, I couldn't see suffering. I couldn't see people needing help and having a, a skill set that could be helpful and just sitting back and sort of saying somebody else can do it. And so I, I you know, it was really hard to, to say, look, I'm going to go into the line of fire. I'm going to go do this in this uncertain, unknown place. And oh, by the way, I hope I don't get sick and end up out there for longer or oh, by the way, I hope I don't get you sick when I get home, um, you know, I think there's that other side of it too as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think I, I have the most amazing spouse in the world um, and he he understands that need that I have to sort of help and, and to be where I can feel useful. It was a little bit of a surprise to him that I had actually already volunteered to go and when I got the Hey, guess what? You're you're going in two days. I had to kind of go back to him and say, "Hey, honey, so guess what? <laughs> I have a of an interesting idea. What do you think?" Um, and you know, he thought it was crazy, as usual, as he does for most of my ideas. But ultimately, he and my my sisters, or my my closest confidant, said, "You know what, you." you have a calling, you feel like you have to go do this. And so we're going to support you, even though we don't necessarily agree with you, we're going to support your decision. And I feel so thankful because we have a community here in Colorado that literally came together to help my family when I was gone. And so I think my husband and kids probably ate much better for the last four weeks than they ever have while i home. And so They've probably been better taken care of in some ways since I've been gone. But Me going to New York City in some ways was a selfish decision because I felt like I had to go there and I had to be there. But in in so many ways, I'm so grateful for the people in my life who were willing to sort of come together to make sure that my family was taken care of in a way that I couldn't do for that month. I think what drives me is always a sense of wanting to make things better. And that's always kind of been my thing, even as the the youngest of three daughters and sisters and, you know, always wanting to kind of make whatever it is better. That's what drew me to being a doctor. That's what drew me to being a mom. That's what drew me to even working for the heart association was that I always could see things and say, gosh, you know, there's, maybe there's a better way to do this. Maybe there's a better way to engage people. Maybe there's a a way in which we can make our communities healthier. And so, you know, I think I'm just always kind of striving to look, underneath the hood and try to see things hopefully that maybe other people don't see. But I think I care deeply and passionately about people in general. And, and I think my relationships hopefully with folks are genuine and deep and, um, and, and they feel that caring side of me because I think that's really what I've always tried to both portray, but I think also just live and teach my, my kids as well. I grew up in a single parent household um, with a mom with three children and we, you know, she worked very long hours. I was a latchkey kid so I can remember my earliest memories of being in first grade, coming home and letting myself in at 2.30 in the afternoon and nobody else was there until about 4.30 when my sisters got home. And we always struggled growing up and so you know, part of me, I think, always kind of sees that struggle that people have. And, and I think everyone's got their own struggles. Even it doesn't matter what socioeconomic class you are, it doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, what gender you are. I think everyone has their own personal, deep struggles. And so to me, that's what I've always kind of felt deeply about, I think. And, you know, having sort of, I don't want to say overcome my own struggles um, growing up, but, you know, having to sort of be my mom's. Husband, um, because my dad wasn't around, having to sort of raise myself because my sisters were nine years older and six years older, um, it gives you a different sense of you know kind of what it means to be an adult at an early age, and so, um, so you know I think for me personally it's just always been a passion of mine to sort of to look at people and to hopefully see beneath the exteriors and say gosh everyone's got their own fight. And so what can I give them? Or what can I do to help that? And and sometimes it's being a doctor, sometimes it's being a friend, sometimes it's just listening to them. Sometimes it's something as simple as just saying hello. And so I think that's what I've always kind of strived to do. And so when I see something struggling, like, so for example, when I saw that there was a struggle happening in New York City, it felt like that's where I had to be. Um, and it wasn't sort of a hey, should I think about this? Um, I kind of just sort of said I need to go. And I think my husband, who I've been with now for over seven years, I think just knows, he knows that about me. Um, And he, you know, kind of said, okay, I I know you have to be there right now. And that's the place you have to be. So we'll make it work. I want to make an impact. I want to do something good for people. And whatever, whatever that is, I want to go do it. I'm relentless about making this world a better place for the people that AHA serves. And I think that takes understanding that there's a lot of uncertainty. It takes a lot of being flexible and willing to change. It takes a lot of energy and drive and passion to say what we have today may not be what we need tomorrow. And so what are we going to do to make sure we are adaptable and we help make our communities adaptable to the new normal um, that we're all living in right now? And so, you know, I think the relentless force that is AHA really is very all encompassing because it serves so many different audiences. And I think that's what makes it so powerful It's not just about being a healthcare provider. It's not just about being in the faith-based community. It's not just about um, being a hospital system. It's about bringing people together, finding that common ground, and then trying to make this world a little bit more certain in a time of a lot of uncertainty. So I will say COVID-19 has probably stirred up a lot of feelings for me and probably for everybody out there, feelings that maybe you didn't even know you had until recently, My biggest fears of COVID-19 really as a physician, you know, it's the first time in my career really where I'm dealing with the disease where I don't know how to prevent it. I don't know the pathophysiology of how it works or how it creates the havoc that it wreaks in some people's bodies, but then nothing in other people. We don't know how to treat it completely. We don't know how to prevent the spread. And so to me, that just uncertainty of all of that, it's so disconcerting as a as a research scientist, as a physician, I feel like you don't know the answers. And so I think I was in a very dark, anxious, panic-stricken place, really, about eight weeks ago. And that was just that feeling of, I'm not doing anything. I don't know the answers. I don't feel like I'm getting any answers. I want to go out and find those answers. And so I think going to New York City for four weeks and just really working in a COVID-positive um you know, patient hospital, being able to see patients who, you know, according to all the statistics, shouldn't be walking out. But here they were, 96 years old, 82 years old, 72 years old, walking out, walking home, going back to their families and to their lives. To me, that gave me a sense of hope. in seeing the literature, the research, the evidence all unfold as I was sitting in New York City, just completely focused on COVID-19, I mean, literally with no distractions, no family, no friends, like just patient care. That was all we were doing. I think to me that really helped me sort of get a better sense of like I can understand what what to some degree I can understand what's going on going on with patients who have COVID-19. I think that brought me a sense of light and a sense of hope and a sense of just feeling a little less uncertain. And so I think coming back. To me, the, the biggest gift I can give to people hopefully right now is just giving them that sense of, hey, look, it's going to be okay. We can do this. We can work together as long as our system doesn't get overwhelmed, as long as our health care resources are, are available to everybody we can get through this. And I think, you know, the patients that I was primarily taking care of in New York City were were primarily immigrants, people of color, people from lower socioeconomic status, people who didn't speak English primarily, and they had very different living situations. You know, they were living in 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 houses of two bedroom apartments with 14 people, and they had issues with whether or not their families would take them back because they were afraid of catching COVID-19 or They had had four or six family members who had actually died from COVID-19 in their own house. And so, you know, you think about the health inequities that we deal with, with the Heart Association, and you think about how COVID-19 has really not even just amplified them, but has really brought them to light in a way that I think we've never seen before. To me, that's what coming back from New York City has really reignited that passion and that need to do is to say, look, look. We have we we have to take care of patients, but more importantly, we have to do a lot of public education. And we have to make sure that communities, especially who have maybe some residual feelings of distrust in, in the healthcare system or even healthcare, even the political system around us, how do we t- how do we get through the noise and get through to those folks and say, look, you have to get care. You have to, you know, you have to be willing to let us take care of you. And if your family member gets sick, you have to let them back in. Um, I mean, there's a stigma that's attached to having COVID-19 now. And so I think if we don't recognize that, if we don't start thinking about that, and if we don't start addressing it, we're going to have all these unintended consequences that we're seeing already playing out in New York City. And I, and I worry about how that's going to play out across the, the rest of the U.S. My first patient that I personally took care of from kind of start to finish, who was discharged from our hospital on the last day, we, you know, we were getting him ready to go. We started you know, asking him what kind of song he wanted. And he had actually had this get well card that had been drawn by a, like an eight year old um, who they had sent a box of these cards, you know, randomly to New York City. And he had gotten one of these and on the back of it, he wrote in Spanish, um, Thank you so much. May God bless you. And that was one of those moments that you're like, oh my gosh, like we've we we've done something different here. You know, and I think as an ER doctor, you know, we're good at sort of fixing things and we're good at, you know, kind of sending people on their way, right, in many ways. And this was the first time that I really felt like from start to finish I, I got to take care of somebody and help him kind of enjoy the journey that he'd been on, but more importantly, the journey that he was going to be taking, which is going back home. And, you know, I think for so many of these patients, they haven't had visitors. And so they may have been by themselves for anywhere from two to six weeks. And so we became their family, right? Because we were the people that they would see every day, multiple times a day. We were doing, you know, as a doctor, I was doing physical therapy because we didn't have a physical therapist. So we had to get these patients up and we had to get them walking and we had to get them exercising so that they could actually get back to their lives. And so, you do the things that you need to do to get these patients back to their communities and to their homes. And so to me, that was that moment where you kind of go, okay, like we're making a difference. And it was in a way that I didn't necessarily imagine, right. As an ER doctor, sometimes it's just being there when, especially when people are lonely and isolated um, with COVID-19 and they can't be with their families. And so we, we just had to sort of be their family be their doctor and their physical therapist and their nutritionist and whatever else they needed at that point and then just celebrate their return back to their lives. It's very personal in a way and so I think we all take kind of a personal success in being able to, to help somebody leave. No other disease process have we ever really been like, blaring music across the, um, the hospital when somebody leaves the hospital, right? I think these are victories that we take very personally. And I think that's because the folks that we're taking care of end up having us as their support system because of the disease process, they can't have anybody else there. And so I think it's just a very personal thing for all of us, much more than it's ever been for most of the other things we've ever created. Almost every single hospital system now has kind of a song that they play when a patient with COVID-19 is leaving the hospital. We actually bought like a speaker online (laughs) so we could we could play whatever song our patients wanted. We let them pick what song they wanted to leave the hospital with and I think it's just funny because never before in my medical career have we played a song when somebody leaves the hospital and it, it becomes a victory for the entire hospital where you've got the, you know, the tunnel of all the healthcare workers, like giving people high fives as the patient leaves. And so I think it's just, it's a totally different perspective and it becomes a, a win for the entire medical team um, that has taken care of that patient. And, and I think we're sharing in the success in a different way. One of our favorite patients, Professor Khan, he actually, um, Gave us an address at the end of his uh, stay with us, just really talking about how his experience at, at our hospital had just kind of changed his entire life, and so tells you about some of the the gratitude. For for my patient who I was talking about with the get well card, he wanted Rocky, the Rocky theme. <laughs> da 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 way We had a Frank Sinatra one, New York, New York. <laughs> Which was really kind of fun. Um, and then we had uh, Let's Get This Party Started by Pink. <laughs> I guess they're a little, some of our younger folks that were getting ready to to get out and were ready to, you know, get their lives back on track. So, um, and we had some that picked more of like kind of gospel songs as well, too, just because I think this has reignited their faith in, in God and humanity. how are my colleagues and I doing right now? I think the question is, it's a little bit unknown. Um, You know, I had a lot of conversations with my colleagues in in New York City who had been through the surge, who had worked in these very high volume emergency departments, who had literally seen the worst of the worst. Um, You know, and I think by the time we got there, it was right after the surge had happened. And so they were starting to kind of go back to kind of, you know, more normal times, if you will, you know, and I I remember each time I would ask them, Hey, how are you feeling? How are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? What can we do to help? And I think we're all still processing, you know, I think especially for them, they're, they're processing what they've seen, what they've experienced. Um, You know, we've lost some colleagues already who went through kind of the the surge in New York city. We lost a very prominent emergency department director um, to suicide To think that this doesn't have some long-term mental health impacts, uh, not just on the healthcare professionals who are, you know, have lived through this, but also through all of the families and the friends and the people who've been affected by COVID-19, I think we would be grossly misunderstanding, misrepresenting kind of the the scope of the problem. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of folks have this panic and this anxiety about the uncertainty that is our lives right now, whether that's if I'm going to have a job, am I going to have food tomorrow? You know, will I have health insurance in the middle of a pandemic? I think these are all real questions that the folks that are in the community are thinking, but even healthcare professionals who are losing their jobs too. To me, I think the biggest thing we can do is just ask um, and ask a lot (laughs) to the point where you're almost maybe a little bit annoying (laughs) to your friends to just check in and say, how are you doing? Because I think you know, with the social distancing comes some sense of isolation. Like we had kind of talked about before, I think everyone's got a struggle. You just don't know what that struggle is until you ask or you dig in deeper. And sometimes we have the opportunity to do that. and Sometimes we don't and it's too late. And we do. So I think just kind of recognizing that no matter how well put together somebody looks on the outside, they probably have something deeper that's going on on the inside. And so taking a moment and just asking, how are you doing and checking in and and reminding people that it's okay to not feel normal because nothing about right now is normal. Um, And I think the more we can kind of reiterate that, that it's okay to feel scared, panicked, anxious, angry, upset, happy, (laughs) in despair, you know, all of the above all in, in the same minute is okay. And it's normal. My final closing thoughts are be kind to each other, be gentle, and treat each other with grace, because that's the only way we're all going to get through this together. And we're all in it together. Thanks for joining us and keep listening. Your next episode is on the way. Stay tuned for more stories of The Relentless.